we don't just encounter people as right and wrong answers. We encounter people first as themselves. And I think this is the important beginning point, is that we can't meet other people where we want them to be, but rather where they are. And we may, from that position of where they are and where we ourselves are, walk somewhere together to understanding, ideally, sort of in the creation of community, toward friendship, toward trust and goodwill. But it's not something that we can do by sort of pulling the levers from behind a curtain. It requires honest conversation. This is Living As You. Here's your host, P.Q. Today on Living As You, we sit down with a Holy Cross priest, a theological researcher, and a dedicated friend to many, Father Kevin Grove. A worldwide lecturer and professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, Father Kevin is dedicating his life to shaping the lives of college students and future generations. Currently the priest in residence in Dunn Hall, Father Kevin enjoys morning chats, half marathons, and the beautiful nature of his home state of Montana. Nothing pleases him more than some good old-fashioned discernment and a commitment to serving others. Father Kevin! Patrick, how are you? I'm so excited to see you. It's good to see you too. To see that big shelf of books on your on your left that looks awesome so i love to start things off by diving into the treasure state of the u.s a place filled with many grizzly bears ponderosa pines and national parks father kevin how did growing up in rural montana shape your life so i grew up in small town montana in a town called hobson and what's extraordinary about that place is that it's a town of about 200 people right in the very center of the state. And it's surrounded by farms and it's an agricultural community, so farms and ranches. And my family um, grew up, uh, we were on a family farm and ranch. And so I grew up with Angus beef cattle and dryland wheat and barley, so hard red winter wheat, which is used for bread and barley for malting for companies like Coors and Anheuser-Busch to become beer, or sometimes it would become cattle feed, um, as well as we would produce alfalfa for hay for the animals, and then we'd build grain bins for other farmers and ranchers during the summertime. And so I grew up in this place that um, really connected me to the earth and to a little community. People in small towns have to depend on one another as neighbors and um, in order to survive, um, in order to have a school, in order to have churches, in order to have a volunteer fire department, all of those sorts of things. And so I'm really grateful to that little place, the natural beauty that's there, and especially the agricultural community that's there. 
I want to hear more about what it was like growing up in such a rural town. Me not ever living in a small town myself. What are some of your memories from growing up in that rural part of Montana? Yeah, I mean, I can give you um, a, a couple of interesting examples, I think, Patrick. And one of, I find the most illustrative is in an agricultural community where people are growing wheat and barley, harvest time is the only time of income for the whole year, right? And so people get out their combine harvesters and their grain trucks and they go out to the fields and they work very hard to bring in this grain um, because these commodities are what provides them income for the next year. But as you can imagine, fast moving and complicated machines and a dry, crisp, hot August time, plus the occasional thunderstorm, it's also a time where fire danger is really, really high. And so having one's fields burned down is a way to lose a whole year of one's livelihood. But in such a vast place and without, you know, a fire department, there are a couple fire trucks in Hobson, but the fire department is volunteer, right? When I was growing up, it was like the mayor, the postmaster, you know, the people who had the businesses on Main Street of town who would go be the volunteer fire department. What has happened since then is that each of these individual agricultural producers would take a pickup truck or some other vehicle from his or her farm and put a water tank with a pump in the back. Basically, each neighbor created their own miniature fire truck. And at the point that someone would see smoke on the big sky horizon, they would put down all of their own work and go to fight their neighbor's fire. And there was just sort of a code of ethics in the way that people operated, that they would stop what they were doing um, to care for the more important need of their neighbor. Um, that's something I saw really profoundly throughout the whole of the community. And I think that's a good example of how, how the fabric of small communities really forges relationships in which people depend upon one another. There are also fun ways in terms of small towns too. People have to just you know, make it work. You know, we had a high school football team when I was there for eight man football, not even 11. And it goes down to six in Montana, believe it or not, Patrick. But we had three towns come together to make our football team. We were the Hobson Moore Judith Gap Tigers at that point. You know, so when you do your jumping jacks at the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of stretches uh, with all the letters of the town, um, you know, we had a lot of towns to add in. So you played football? I did. Star we quarterback. Not good. Uh, we were not very good. We didn't have a great record when I was there, but I did very much enjoy it. That is legendary. That is legendary. So you talked about really finding a connection to the community as well as the earth when you were when you were raised in Montana uh, in, the, in the sense of values this sense of community how did that inspire or shape your journey towards becoming a holy cross priest and going into the incredible work you've done with saint augustine and your research on memory and spiritual and moral meaning how did that how did that shape your journey there yeah, it's a good question, Patrick. And I think what I realized is I would not be happy sort of living life just out on my own. It's one thing to have friends, but that community and the relationships and love that we foster matter a great deal to our happiness. And I found in the Congregation of Holy Cross a group of people who strive to live, uh, the priest brothers and sisters, as a family. That's actually the goal and that sort of value it doesn't mean that we're good at it every day certainly but that sort of value was really attractive extended family and small town were always really important to me and i learned that value of course as i've just expressed from hobson 
But what I found in the Holy Cross community is something similar. People striving to be together, to live in a close and tight-knit community that's supportive of one another. And that value came actually from Holy Cross's founder, Father Basil Moreau, who lived in 19th century France and was trying to sort of reconstruct um, sort of bonds of goodness and trust after the mistrust and violence that ensued early in his just before he was born and then in his childhood after the French Revolution. And the way in which he founded this religious community was meant to sort of foster that building of trust and relationships of mission for the common good, specifically through the work of education. And I feel that um, Holy Cross, you know, at its very best, you know, tries to live in that family mode and not only among one another, but how we live at our apostolates, right? That we might sort of be present to our students and sort of help them to form communities to persons that are of consequence, both citizens of earth and citizens of heaven, as Moreau used to call it in his writings. Um, and so that family theme, in my mind, sort of transfers quite directly from what I discovered uh, is good about community in my childhood home of Montana and what I strive to live day in and day out, you know, some days better than others in the congregation of Holy Cross. Sure. And what I love about that, what you, what you just talked about, was, was the idea of, okay, you're a Holy Cross priest. You've been able to really establish, again, those values in your life, that cooperation community that have been really integral and in, in shaping your path. But then you've been able to combine the two into living in a college dorm on a college campus with a community of 200, 250 guys, uh, being in, that being Dunn Hall, where I was lucky enough to, to meet you, Father Kevin. How the heck, bring me into the steps of how you decided to enter a college dorm, but still be a priest and, and be a, uh, a, a teacher, a professor of theology. How did, I don't know many priests who are living in college dorms. Well, I would just say this. I, uh, I go to bed a lot later. Uh, my schedule has, has shifted uh, into the night just because of uh, being a good neighbor. No, this is a hallmark of the way Holy Cross does education in that we would abide and be present to our students in day in and day out, that we would sort of live and pray and grow together. And so when I started on the theology faculty at the University of Notre Dame, I joined the very long tradition of priests being priests in residence, and there are also rectors too in University of Notre Dame dormitories. And as you know well, Patrick, because you lived uh, just down the hall from me, you know, Dunn Hall, where I abide, has got 221 undergraduate souls, and the priest who is the rector, and a lay married couple in residence as well. And all of us, um, I would say, become agents of that sort of community, that family model in the Dunn community. We have Hall Mass, we have Hall Government, there is a Hall Retreat. And, you know, my job in that is, um, one, as a person to talk with about life, and I make myself available for those sorts of conversations with Dunn residents. I say masses and hear confessions and am there as a resource for that sort of community. And that's an extraordinary blessing because college is a time when people are forming a lot of opinions and deep uh, reflections about who they are, their place in this world, what they stand for, who their friends are, how it is that they um, want to go about enacting values. And it's an amazing chance to walk along with people as they ask those deep questions. Well, you were able to introduce me 
to those convert those deeper conversations and really just asking the questions. And I think I was very blessed to have a college experience of many conversations and many late night discussions about life and those questions that I think every human has, but every person doesn't always have the opportunity to have a community around them to engage with in discussion. And so that was that was extremely meaningful for me. Can you share a couple of moments or stories from your time living in Dunn, being at Notre Dame, interacting with crazy college students that are just, that have really, are, are memories you will never forget, have just been integral parts of your, your time in South Bend thus far, Father Kevin? You know, the, the experiences are sort of one after the next. You know, I keep my door open in the evenings and people are just welcome to come into the living room portion where I live and to have a conversation. And sometimes, you know, someone will cross the threshold who's looking for um, help on theology homework. There will be someone else who has come in to excitedly say that he has just, you know, sort of found the love of his life and everything is going great. Somebody else might just stop in to say hi, and yet another will sit down in tears because he has had the pressure of his whole life. College is going to be the experience of having the closest friends ever, and it just hasn't happened yet, and he thinks that something is wrong. Um, now, that's actually one of the most common ones, um, and it's one of the hardest parts about going to college because everybody thinks they've got to live into this experience, which doesn't, isn't transacted so quickly. But in the course of an evening, I guess one of the most wonderful parts is that the conversations could be all of these uh, in just the sequence of an hour or two. And so I particularly love that. The, uh, you know, the other bits of living in the dorm that I've, I've really come to appreciate, you know, when a section of guys will decorate their own section for Christmas, that always turns into a particularly wonderful occasion. Also, when I see upperclassmen looking out for freshmen with kindness. I get to be, I guess, a witness to these parts of college life, which are the ones that don't make the newspapers. And I see that goodness in our students day in and day out. Also the playfulness, right? You know, I'm also there to sort of witness some of the uh, skinned knees of life in college. And because I hear confessions, I can be a bit of an agent of mercy in that regard. But most, more than anything, I'm very proud of the way in which people grow um, while they're in Dunn Hall. What about the, the, the 2 a.m. wake-up calls when you, you hear a fire alarm signaling that someone uh, left the popcorn in the microwave way too long and now the whole dorm has to evacuate in the middle of winter and negative degree weather. Those are some good ones, right? <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, the uh, middle of the night fire alarm is maybe my least favorite thing, um, especially when it's during a polar vortex and it's negative 40. I don't know if you were in the dorm that year. But, um, but hey, we get through them and they create sort of bonds of common, common suffering when they happen. Um, I, of course, have been the culprit on one occasion, which probably means I should confess that as a fire alarm. There was uh, a gentleman in the section who wanted to cook for the section. So I have a small kitchen in my room and said, you know, if he wanted to make food for everybody in the section, I would allow him to use my kitchen. And he had learned how to make chicken noodle soup, which is pretty terrific. And I think his mom would be proud. So I had to go to the Basilica to hear confessions of say mass or something. And so I was going to leave them alone for about an hour. They were started making soup. There were like three students from my section 
looking like they had this under control. They had the ingredients. They were chopping chicken noodle soup on the stove. I thought, all right, this is in this is moving in the right direction. You know, like no trouble. I come back, and sure enough, like the fire department is pulling up. I quickly go up there, and as it turns out, now thankfully the fire system is quite modern and done. So if it only if there's only one room going off. It doesn't set the whole building off, just that one room. Uh, it's not until it goes to more than one room or a common space that the whole building has to evacuate. But I, it was my room. Um, how they managed to do this, I don't know. Um, there wasn't smoke, but somehow it set off the smoke detector. But I did have to greet the firefighters on the way into the building and confess that it was my room and that it was burning soup. Uh, the look that I received from the fire chief is one I'll never forget. You, you hopefully... Uh instead of offering them some burn soup, maybe offer them a little water or a little consolation for their, they're coming out to Dunhall, right? Surprisingly, the soup tasted great. So, you know, whatever it was, like they still did fine. I love it. I love <laughs> Nothing like college made soup for the first time. That is, that is solid. Father Kevin, I'd like to pivot now and really dive into some of those moments in your life in regards to taking leaps of faith. And one of the core tenets of my life, one of the, the things I really love having discussions about and asking individuals in my life who, who live authentically, just like yourself, uh, is are those moments, those moments in which they could take one path in life, but they choose to take another one. Can you take me through uh, some of those times in your life when you took specific leaps of faith and just kind of talk of, talk about how you were able to do that? It's a good question, Patrick. And I could point to a couple different ones. And, you know, some of them are, are pretty basic. And you know, the first one that comes to mind is when I was thinking about where to go to college. And I had a number of schools lined up and pros and cons based on all sorts of things, right? That have to do with the school itself and what I wanted to study and financial aid and all of those, um, those things. But ultimately, I sort of had a gut feeling that this place that I had visited, I went to undergraduate at Seattle U, was just right for me. Um, and I don't normally like to make decisions by my gut, right? I mean, we tend to be sort of quite cerebral and rational people. And that sort of affective decision-making was a little bit disconcerting for me. But sometimes we do know deep down that things are right. Um, and this is part of the learning of discernment in our lives. When we're able to come to terms with our own wills, our own will, wants, and desires, uh, and be able to sort through them in a way that we can get to sort of our deepest desire. And I sort of first experienced that when I was trying to figure out where to go to college. That, of course, you know, I've had to repeat that sequence of discerning difficult things again. Um, one of them was going into the seminary and then ultimately becoming priest. And first, we desire certainty in taking leaps of faith. But very rarely does sort of certainty come um, with which we might know with absoluteness that X or Y is the right thing to do. Um, and this would be the same case for someone falling in love as it would be um, going into something like I did in the seminary. Um, we don't have the evidence that points that says, you know, this is 100% the right thing for me to do. There's no test for that, but rather sort of the growing awareness that we have over time that I am doing what is truly me and what is me in relation to God and neighbor. That's what propels us forward. 
and enables us even to sacrifice ourselves for what we believe in. So I did that certainly in joining the seminary, which again was a test process to say, gosh, is this really right for me? I think it might be, but I don't know for sure going in. I couldn't. There's no evidence I could possibly gather that I would know that for sure. And then I would say the same thing once I was a priest going and getting a doctorate um, in order to become a professor. I didn't know precisely what that would be like. I knew that I liked school and I knew that I um, thought I would enjoy teaching, but sort of the courage to go across uh, the Atlantic and to go to England to go to school, um, those were all big steps for me. But based on sort of the evidence I had gathered and what I knew of myself, and the ability to continue to ask those questions with trusted friends and mentors, it makes leaps of faith not something that I would just do alone, but something that I would do in concert with people I trusted. And so I wasn't just leaping out to be by, leaping out by myself, but was always in relation to other people. And I think that's an important part of the leap of faith, is that we tend not to do them in a vacuum, but connected to God and neighbor. I couldn't agree more. In when you were talking about your decisions on uh, your discernment process of choosing where to go to college, Seattle U, and then joining the, the Holy Cross brother or the Holy Cross priest, I started thinking about some of those of uh, my own discernment moments in my life. And I think you said it best. When I thought about making, when I've come to kind of a crossroads and I'm making a decision, whether it's to change houses in Vail, Colorado, and I'm torn in a really weird situation between a couple families and things are getting out of control with all this drama, or I'm choosing between Notre Dame and, and other schools with college, or even at this stage in my life, I've, I've finished school and now everyone's like, okay, what's next? What are you doing? You're not going to be sitting in your parents' basement the, or the main cave for, for the next 20 years. And I'm sure I could have a good time doing that, but I, I like to be out in the world. But that whole, the whole idea of making those decisions with other people's thoughts and opinions in mind, but at the end of the day, you having the courage to make that decision. And I loved what you said about doing it in community with other people. And that's something I've tried to bring to my life is when I have a decision that I want someone's feedback on, usually my dad's, I like the idea of bouncing the decision, bouncing my thoughts off of him or somebody else not asking him or someone to make the decision for me. Because to me, decision-making is a very empowering process. And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Ultimately, we often find these sorts of decisions you're speaking about, these sorts of decisions you're speaking about are not often decisions, you know, this is going to be a good thing and this one is going to be a bad one. But we're often discerning here between or even among goods that I might have this or that opportunity, and they're both good options, right? And so the decision-making you're speaking about, sort of coming to, coming to terms with it, is something that at a certain point we have to own ourselves. And so at, we do live these decisions in communities, but I've often found walking with undergraduates that once all of the options are on the table, they've done the cost-benefit, they've talked to their parents, they've talked to their friends, then that most authentic part about decision-making has to, has to come home, which is they're thinking about who they truly are and what they truly desire, and then making a decision based upon that. And ultimately, that sort of happens in the inner part of our own consciences. And to be able to do that and say that we've done it with integrity is a really important part of growing into being good decision-makers. 
and it's something that only comes with practice. It happens, you know, in very inconsequential ways. And sort of, what am I going to do with my evening? In what way will I have extracurriculars? Right? What will I do with my summer internship? Et cetera, et cetera. And then it gets to bigger questions: Who will I love? And what will I do for graduate school? How will I occupy my labor? And what will I do for my leisure? Um, these are the sorts of decisions that, that ratify in some way who we are because we connect what we do and who we are very importantly, not totalizingly, but very importantly in our society. Agreed. And having those, those genuine, authentic conversation that I think a lot of people think about college, college offers. And, and you've, uh, in my life, and not only at Notre Dame and Dunn, but all over campus, Father Kevin, you are a legend for looking at someone with so much compassion and empathy and like you've done to me, bringing them into your room and saying, okay, let's, let's chat. Let's have a conversation about anything. We need to have those genuine open conversations more than ever when it comes to politics, religion, social justice, any issue, whether it's family or friends or colleagues. Can you talk about the way you've been able to so well elicit conversations that aren't attacking, that aren't judging. You create a trusting environment that allows people from all walks of life to open up and say, this, this is a space. That is an amazing gift and it's something you've practiced, but we need this more than, than ever in this world. How do you go about doing that? Pope Francis uses a theological word called accompaniment. And I think that probably describes best what I aim for in these sorts of conversations. Because we can have conversations where we try to convince people of something, right? Of our own rightness, of our own way of the world, etc. But to walk with someone where you're just completely open to receiving what they have to say, and more importantly, who they are, even if you disagree with what they have to say, is a um, spiritual disposition of openness, right? That's difficult because other people definitionally are not ourselves, don't think, see, and operate in the world as we do. And there's a great humility in being able to just be completely open to what another has to say. And the immediate objection, of course, is, well, what if they're wrong? But we don't just encounter people as right and wrong answers. We encounter people first as themselves. And I think this is the important beginning point, is that we can't meet other people where we want them to be, but rather where they are. And we may, from that position of where they are and where we ourselves are, walk somewhere together to understanding, ideally, sort of in the creation of community, toward friendship, toward trust and goodwill. But it's not something that we can do by sort of pulling the levers from behind a curtain. It requires honest conversation, and in some cases, a lot of compromise. We're just hardwired differently and coming to appreciate that about other human persons is really important. And in the idea of remembering everyone as context and everyone as baggage, I think that's something I've been thinking a lot more now that I've been able to study a little bit of neuroscience uh, after four years at ND. And so just remembering context is, or remembering everyone as a story. I think that is just massive. That is just absolutely massive. One of the things, uh, Patrick, on that note that I've found to be really beautiful is I help with the retreat for my dorm each year. And one of the things that's the exercises that continues year after year is allowing people putting uh, to sort of more extensively tell their stories. Because very often we're able to give a succinct resume-like introduction to one another. 
who we are, our hometown, what our major or degree program is, and sort of what we want to be when we grow up. This is the standard introduction to the college age person. And it's rare that we have the occasion to speak a bit more about who we are in a way that defines us more honestly. And providing a form, a format, and most importantly, a forum for that is something that I have found increases authentic bonds of community among young people at a very quick rate. And um, over the last five years on the retreat that I've helped the students to run for our dorm, students have a chance first to create these narratives about their own lives, and then very importantly to share them and others and experience both giving and receiving who another person is. And that's really an important process. They also realize how much work it is and how much time it takes. Getting to know other people in this manner is extraordinarily inefficient. It would be much easier just to scroll through someone's Facebook feed, but that wouldn't provide the, uh, the honest look, but rather the curated image. Mm-hmm. The vulnerability. You've done such a good job on the retreat. That's a, that's a highlight every single year done. And okay, I'm going to challenge you, Father Kevin, right now. If I, were to, if I were to say, share with me a narrative or a story that not many people can glean simply from your uh, packed bio on the Notre Dame website or all the, the, the publications you have or the, the research posters or presentations and lectures you give all over Europe, share with me, who is, who is Father Kevin Grove? Share with me a narrative that maybe not many people know about you or a specific aspect of your life? Sure, another great question. I can think of some, some really interesting ones. I'd love to hear them all. Let's see. I'll give you one from home and one from graduate school. How about that? From home, people in Hobson, Montana, because it's a small farming town, learn to drive far before the legal age, all right? So I, um, I think it was legal to drive like end of my freshman year into sophomore year of high school, right? Um, and, but before then, I think in fifth grade, I got to start driving a grain truck in, just in the field, not on the road, as the combine would pull up and like dump the grain from the combine into the truck. And I would drive along the combine going at the same pace, right at the uh, certain distance away from it in order to receive the grain that was coming out of the combine and then drive it over to the corner where like another person would take it and then actually dump it, driving it on the road, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to become part of a team of people who labored for something important from a young age. I remember actually quite precisely as a fifth grader being so proud of being able to do that. You know, I was probably going like 2.4 miles an hour um, in this grain truck, but nonetheless, like it had, you know, five gears, right? And uh, it was a big truck that required a lot of care. And I would sit out in that truck um, one, to be proud of what I was doing, but two, then I don't have to wait for the combines to come around for the next, for the next uh, batch of grain. And it was then that I would sit and I would just read because I just had to wait. And so a love of learning also in my life was fostered sitting in a harvest field. That's one. And then the second one is a little bit of an adventuresome side. And as a graduate student in England, I had uh, three other American friends who were doing PhDs in different fields. We were in the same funding program. We weren't going home for the summer because we were all getting to the point in our PhDs or or master's degrees where we had quite a lot of work to do to finish our dissertations and just stayed there in England over the course of the summer. And 
at some point we needed a break, right? Like just to actually take a little bit of summer break. And so we decided we would take an adventure together as you can only do in Europe. And the rules were this, somewhere we would never otherwise go and then somewhere that we could also get there on a discount airline, right? Because this was going to be a low budget operation. And we settled on Russia and we ended up taking the Trans-Siberian Railroad from St. Petersburg all the way over to Lake Baikal um, and then going down into Mongolia and homestaying family in their yurt and then coming back to England. So I would also just say that there's this little bit of an adventurous side in me as well, the sort of 5,000 kilometers on a train sort of adventure. That's epic. That's epic. I want to, I have so many questions, but okay, so you're, you're, you're traveling across Europe with, with your friends and you're on these trains and you're in these mountains and you're seeing these incredible sights you've probably never been exposed to. Like what's going through your head? From, from someone who, again, you, you've come from such a small town and then obviously getting to go to Cambridge and, that was, and then obviously Paris and study there. But then the, these places you probably never even imagined you'd see. What was your experience like taking them in? There's one level where it's just the encounter first of another culture, which is, you know, one has to be open to receiving first, just like other people. Second, other histories, right? It's fun to dive into that. But also, too, just the forming of relationships, um, not only with the, the friends with whom I was traveling, but also with people around the globe. Right? We oftentimes think about the same struggles, questions, and issues. Um, it's very interesting to be an American abroad and to receive perceptions of one's own country and leadership from other points and persons in the world. And those vary from country to country. And sort of moving across upper middle Asia People have strong but very widely varying opinions about the United States. And so it was fascinating to be part of that as well. There's, it, it was also a time just to encounter foods that I had not, uh, that I had not encountered before. Yeah, in, in all sorts of different ways. It was, um, we think about adventures and travels that might really challenge us. And that was one of the great joys of this one. With the mm -hmm. diversity of things, like from Lake Baikal, which is the deepest freshwater and one of the coldest uh, freshwater lakes in, uh, in the world, certainly by volume, to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, the landscape changed quite drastically just in, in a short amount of days of travel. Do you remember some of those diversifying opinions of the U.S. or who you were? Maybe someone would say, hey, you're, you're this or that. Or Do you remember some of those that really just you thought were just so, wow. You just took a step back and said, man, I had never thought that, for example, I went to France and it was so funny to be, to, to talk to some of my friends and he, they just asked the most hilarious questions. Most people did not think Americans were fat, lazy, overweight, and always went to McDonald's to get their cheeseburgers, which uh, a lot of people do, but it's, it's not, not quite the stereotype. But one thing that was so funny is people kept asking me about chewing gum. And they're like, yeah, like, do you, how often do you chew gum? Do you have your gum? I'm like, I haven't chewed gum in seven years, man. I mean, people chew gum, but I don't think that's really in a, necessarily an American thing. But to some of my friends, it was like, Americans equal gum. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I like that, Patrick, a lot. Um, I never got asked about gum. People were frequently wondering why we were so loud. <laughs> So like the reputation of Americans abroad is that we're just very, very loud. 
in our expressions, in our conversations, in sort of shouting, being with one another. Now, look, there are other cultures who are sort of loud with each other too. But that was, that was one of the, the immediate ones. Then they would always want to ask about our opinions about political leaders um, and based on who was empowered any one moment. And I was abroad through more than one administration, as it turns out. But they would also want to ask about our political leaders. And what was interesting about this is how engaged our uh, sort of fellow citizens of our world were about the American political landscape, um, which really sort of offers, I think, a challenge for us um, to be aware of their political landscape too, right? How have they thought about their elections? And I began sort of challenging myself to learn more about who was up for office, even in my own residence country over there of England, and how it is they were processing those details in a couple of contentious elections in their country. And to start to ask not only what the, I because mean, I was getting lots of questions about what they thought about the US, but to be able to reflect that back in a way that I was equally engaged in what was going on in their homes. Um, and I think that's something in general abroad, there are a lot of people who inquire about life in America, but oftentimes that conversation doesn't go both ways and it's probably important that it does. It's so true. And when I came back from Angers uh, about two years ago, it became so apparent to me that because we're so isolated as a country and we're so big and we're so in our own world, we're not near any of these European countries or really many countries at all how easy is it for us to just stay in our own bubbles, not yeah. learn another language, not be informed of world things. Oh, that's happening over there. That's over in France, over in Australia, there's fires, all oh, that, that attacks, that's over there. It's not affecting us. And I found that to be something that in my life, looking back, I fell into that trap. And as I looked around, even on college campus, I saw that a lot of people saying, you know what, like, Okay, whatever is going on in the world, it doesn't really, it's not affecting me directly right now. So I'm not going to put in much effort to really understand what's going on because that doesn't affect me. How do you gently nudge or guide people to, to slightly, hey, give them, give them a little taste of learning about the world and about everything? Because especially right now, we just had an election. And it's so easy for people to say, I'm done with the election. I, like, I don't, I'm done with politics for a long time until something else colossal happens. I'm done being informed. Woo! And I get it. People should take a break. If they're exhausted, wiped out, it's been a crazy year. It's been everything. But my personal values say, Patrick, you're educated. You're privileged beyond measure. You have an amazing gift where something is passed in government and you're not directly affected like on a daily basis. Your life doesn't change in an instant like millions of others. You need to stay informed, not only of what's going on in the US, but around the world because people are counting on you to use your position and privilege and leadership to help others in, in this world or whatever decision you do. How do you gently nudge people towards that mindset of, of learning, even if it's not, quote, directly affecting them? Part of it for us is here at Notre Dame is the conscious work of actually connecting people, right? We have seminars that run over breaks where people go all around the country and the world. I led one with Dunn Guys to Uganda um, with Father Matt and the rector and Dr. Deke and the rector of one of the women's dorms on campus uh, paired with us in order to help people encounter others in Uganda. So part of the work that we do here at the university is like actually keeping these matters of importance on the minds of people 
But the other way just to do that in conversation is to really bring people's personal narratives to the fore. And I think that's part of the way in which when we find ourselves sort of systematically disengaging, it's good to ask the question, what is this or that person's experience like in this context that's not my own? And that starts to awaken us to new frontiers of new questions in places that are not ours. And at Notre Dame, when you see these students coming from so many backgrounds, do you believe that it takes a personal experience, such as that Uganda trip or an Appalachia seminar or an experience or conversation with someone from a different context or background, like the trip you had to Russia, for someone to almost wake up in a sense? Or can people begin that process of educating themselves about the world, even if they haven't fully maybe experienced all that the world was like to offer? I, I, it can happen both ways, Patrick. But ultimately, I'm rather theologically committed to the idea that we discover who we fully are when we rise above our self-interest and lay down our lives for our friends. And that builds communities of relation and love. That can be thought about in the abstract, but it can only be lived in the concrete. And so I think any of the interactions of consequence we speak about, not only sort of consciousness of other people in the world and other cultures, but even those close to us in community and family, are only as sensical as they are experienced. And so at the end of the day, we might be sort of in the abstract very committed to the common good, but our commitment has to be measured against how it is that we act each day and how engaged we are with those beyond ourselves and our self-interest. And so, yeah, I do think it's required that we uh, put ourselves out there with others very near to us and very far from us um, in order to really think about how we were going to rise above our self-interest, um, serve the common good, what that might look like. And I think that's where the idea of community is so big, doing so with other people. Because when you're, when you're going through anything in life by yourself, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty difficult. It's hard. Some things are going to be hard already. So why make them harder by doing it by yourself? Why, why not do it with other people or other beings or in a community? Father Kevin, I want to transition now as we're starting to, to get close to the end of our conversation to something that I like to call five question flash, getting to know Father Kevin Grove. So <laughs> I, I got five questions for you that I'm going to hit okay. you with. And I just want you to tell me the first thought, response that comes to mind. You ready? Sure. Number one, what was one of the most valuable high school, college, or graduate courses you ever took? First thing that comes to mind, a course called Mysticism and Morality, graduate school course. But I had to read the lives of people who thought very deeply about spiritual lives in the most ethereal way and how that connected to how they decided to live. They were thinkers and thought worlds I would have never otherwise encountered, and it made me rethink a lot of things. If you could add another person to Mount Rushmore, who would it be and why? Does that person need to be an American? No, anyone. I would definitely add, I'm gonna stick with the American category since Mount Rushmore tends to be an American establishment, but I would add one of the great female saints of American history, like Mother Cabrini, who cared for America's poor um, and in need of hospitals. 
I would add someone like that to my Rushmore. There are people of power there, but I would add someone of service. I love that. When was the last time you cried tears of joy? Oh, Notre Dame being Clemson. That was awesome. That was awesome. If you could choose your dreams, what would you choose to dream about? Heaven with everybody else I know. Great answer. Finally, you have an opportunity to put any message on a giant billboard that millions of people are going to see. What would the message be? To be human is to be related in love. So love one another. That's huge. That's huge. Okay. You, you passed you pass the test. You passed those five questions. Yeah, so thank you, you. Thank you. So you see, so you can relax. So as we're wrapping up our conversation, Father Kevin, I simply just want to ask you a couple questions that, that I want to leave our, our listeners with. Advice, call to action. When you look back on your 22-year-old self, I'm 22 currently. There's a lot of college students who are going to be listening to this episode and fired up that they get to hear Father Kevin Grove. What would be the advice or a word of wisdom you would give your 22-year-old self? The most important things are not the metrics by which we define ourselves on our CVs. So GPA, the resume, you know, for the high school self, the test scores, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Rather, by the time one is in his or her 30s and, well, not to my 40s, but 30s for now, I know. The things which make a life meaningful and worthwhile are the relationships of love we cultivate. And the achievements even of career pale in comparison to those whom we care about in our lives. And how did you begin to discern or explore, figure that out for yourself in a world that many times tells us we are our GPAs, we are our CVs? It required, I think, first of all, you know, when you accomplish something through going for a walk and being like, wow, is that it? Right? Like, is that all that this provides? And then two, being grateful for um, moments of friendship and goodness. And I ask college kids to do this a lot. Like, think of 20 people you're grateful for whom God has put into your life, not because you have earned them, but because they're a gift. And just pray their names in a little litany of gratitude. And we start to awaken to the blessings uh, of other human persons in our lives. And that sort of jolts us out of the complacency of our own achievement um, and into that which we're blessed with. And finally, Father Kevin, what would be your call to action to anyone listening? The call to action would be to admit when we need help, to be honest about our need for others, to have courage in darkness and hope, and to be good and caring to one another, putting the common good before our Thank you. Father Moreau, who founded Holy Cross, let me give you one last, that's sort of like a closing prayer. He um, wrote this sushi pay, which he gave to Holy Cross, which I like very much. And it goes like this. It's very short. <clears throat> if God has given me a mind, it is so that I may know him. If he has given me a heart free to love, it is so that I may attach myself to him. If he has given me limbs, health, and strength, it is so that I may use them in his service. If I am all that I am, it is only for him. And I must strive unceasingly towards him as my center. Patrick, when we start to live beyond ourselves, but for others, we discover that mind, heart, limbs, health, strength might be deployed toward the greater good, which also includes ourselves. Thank you. Father Kevin, your wisdom and insights are unparalleled. 
and you're still the only priest I've ever, or honestly person on the earth I've ever talked to who's given a homily wearing Jordan. So I'd say you're, you're the coolest priest around, that is for sure. Well, thanks for that. No, I have to, you know, your listeners won't know that I didn't actually own those Jordans. They were borrowed from a student who dared me to wear them for a homily. So uh, I can't claim to be cool enough to own Jordans, but I did give a homily in someone else's shoes. And that's pretty epic. I don't know if a lot of people can actually say that. They try and put themselves in someone else's shoes, but you literally did that. <laughs> it's great to be with you, Patrick. Thanks for doing this uh, this uh, show. It's a great idea. Know my support and uh, all best wishes to you.